Blog Talk Radio. <laughs> Take my baby to a movie show So I can try to smooch her while the lights are low But she will cuddle to a story of romance There's only one way I've got a chance It takes a Batman, Wolfman, Frankenstein or Dracula To put her in the mood for love It takes a cat, girl, dog, boy, creature from the Black Lagoon To make her feel like making love It takes a monster from outer space to make my baby want my embrace. And when I hold her, she's like a dream. If only she can hear somebody scream. Welcome to another edition of Archivist Bets on Sexy Witches, a podcast from the Geek Girls Perspective, and I am the head hauntress. I know we've been slim pickings this season, there's been a lot of life getting in the way, but we are here, and I am proud to say that it is officially spooky season! Woo! We made it to another spooky season. I officially declared the beginning of Suki season last Friday with the premiere of Joe Bob's a Halloween special where he showed his Mahonic drive-in special of Night of the Demons, which is a Halloween-based movie, by the way, uh, two years ago at um, in the Mahonic drive-in in Pennsylvania. Uh, so, uh, you know, that to me was totally the beginning. And we don't stop until Days of the Dead in November. So here we are. Welcome to Spooky Season. Let me welcome my sexy witches. We have a great show tonight. After we do some rate caps around 9.30, we're going to have a special guest tonight, Julian David oh. Stone. Woo. Not only is he a author and screenwriter, matter of fact, he's here to talk about his book, It's Alive, which is a historical fiction novel about the making of Universal's Frankenstein movie, which is interesting. He also mm-hmm. is pretty much a scholar on all things Dracu- uh, uh, classic horror. So uh, he is a perfect penultimate episode to our live rules read next week. Next week is the beginning of the Halloween horror movie marathon madness. Sucks, aka Dracula, Endless Stat, and Vampires. That's our. That's going to be our theme this year, and that is next week's episode. So if you're listening, going, well, I just told about the madness. We will read <laughs> the madness next week. This is our penultimate episode where we're going to touch base and everything. And then next week, we will start the madness proper. On the 20th, uh, the show will be normal time, 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific. And then after the show at 11 Eastern, I, a little bit after that, I will post the rules on the Facebook page, the Halloween Horror Movie Marathon Madness Group, and you can claim a slot in this year's madness. I can't believe it's here already. It's been mm-hmm. it's just kind of, I haven't even finished writing the rules, but we won't talk about that. We'll, um, so, <laughs> so let me introduce my sexy witches. You can hear the laughter from all the way from Orange mm-hmm. County. And that is, uh, welcome to the show, the Warlock of Orange County, Erin Kogan, who brought us our guest tonight. Thank you. Welcome. You're all sexy witches. 
Uh, thank you so much for having me on yet again. Um, I have to ask two things really quickly. One, mm-hmm. have you told our audience the uh, the interesting problem you had with naming this year's contest sucks and Facebook? Oh. And two, what was that song you played at the top of the show? Because that was awesome. Well, that was uh, the Diamonds, and that's Batman, Wolfman, Frankenstein, and Dracula, or Dracula. Um, I love that song. I'm adding it to my party I mean, list. Yeah. Nathan, I think you introduced me to that song, actually. What year was that? Oh, God. I'm not 100% sure. Uh, I don't know what year that was. I've got... 1959. 59, thank I couldn't remember if it was 50s or 60s. I've got actually a pretty extensive list of uh, Halloween-themed novelty oldies I'll have to share with you. It's not me talking. Let's welcome to the show... The sorcerer, the dirty southern sorcerer from Atlanta, Georgia, Nathan Hamilton. Hello, Hello la- sexy witches. Hello, ladies, gentlemen, and everything in between. It's good to be here. It's good to be starting spooky season. It's the yes. most wonderful time of the year. I'm not going to try and sing because I'm sick right now, and you don't need to hear that. Right. I don't think anyone Aww. needs to hear that. So, um, No, but... You should say that um, after the, our interview tonight, we are going to uh, change to the voice of violence and have him talk about a lot of shit has gone down in the last few weeks, including my uh, 50th birthday. Uh, we went to see all. Uh, we went to see the um, AEW Dynamite Collision taping, which ended up being pretty monumental because it was the go home show right before they went to England and did All In, which was the largest single wrestling event in history at 86,000 people in attendance, which is like the largest largest paid attendance of any (laughs) wrestling show in history. But it it also happened to be the second to last match of CM Punk himself. And we were there to witness it. So, uh, well, there's a lot going on with that. He kind of brought it on himself, uh, but you know we'll talk huh. about that after the interview tonight. So we do, but there is a lot to talk about, and uh, of course, rest in peace, Terry Funk and Bray Wyatt, who we lost at the same time. Yeah, uh, that's all that was going down. So <laughs> last but certainly not least, <coughs> excuse me, I am sick tonight, but I'm going to muffle through this shit. Oh, um, <laughs> Please welcome to the show, who sometimes is in Portland and uh, and sometimes in LA. I don't know where you are right now, but welcome to the show. My um, Enchantress of Nevermore themselves, Raven, Jasper Hawk. Welcome up with the 60 Witches. Where are you right now? Howdy. I'm calling from Portland today. That's what I thought. Wow. Okay, so you're back in the Northeast uh, doing your Northeast thing. You've got a show coming up, right? Yes, although it's Northwest. <laughs> But, uh, oh, you're right. I, I'm in, I, I met Northwest. I was living in the Northeast. I'm now in the South. Anyway, I'll talk to you. Yeah. Yeah, there's a, I'm directing a show that opens September 28th, and then I'll be back in LA for the start of the madness. And we got a lot to talk about madness. But right now, we're gonna t- we'll also, uh, after the interview, right before you sign off, we'll have you plug in detail your, your event so people will come see it. So, um, and so that's everything. But before we do that, uh, let's talk a little bit about um, what we've been watching and recapping. Um, 
and got a few films under our skin. Um, uh, as I was actually really behind on new releases, but then I got to cram a bunch of them in. I got them all at the same time. I got Meg Two in, got Barbie we saw, in. We got saw Tom maybe in. the maybe the weirdest double feature that still absolutely worked a hundred percent perfectly. We went to the drive-in and saw a double feature of Talk to Me and Barbie. Yeah. Oh, nice. Okay. And somehow it worked perfectly. Yeah, well, they're both female centric <laughs> films. So it kind of works. Well, go ahead, Raven. Oh, I was going to say I saw Barbie in the theater. Um, and it's my first time seeing a movie in the theater since before COVID. Besides. Wow. Oh, wow. Welcome back. And I do. And Jesus Christ Superstar. <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> what is. Uh, what is what was your viewpoint on the Barbie film? Um, well, I've seen it three times now. Two, the first two times I was watching less than, than legitimate copies, and then the third time was in the theater, and it just flushed it out so much more. And uh, you know, there's 500 uh, physical, like visual jokes going on at once, um, and it's just beautiful, like nonstop beauty, nonstop film references, um, easy to spot ones, and then there's like the advanced version, so everyone can play. I enjoyed it. I thought the bat, like the last ten minutes, got a little sappy, but I really, really did enjoy the Barbie movie. I thought the score was fun. The art direction was really fun. I just like I yeah. was telling I was telling Nathan when we were watching it I was like you know that phone call that the art director got when he got the gig you know he just creamed all over his bed at that moment because you know I, I would <laughs> I mean you you're know, giving me just, you're giving me how much to make a Barbie dream house <laughs> yeah yeah exactly <laughs> so and you get to design the costumes too I mean it's just you know. It's a costumer's dream job to do something like that. Uh, no doubt. So, so, yeah, so we got those in. Meg 2 was weird, and I knew it was going to be weird because of the director, Ben Wheatley, but it, it's an action picture, a big, dumb action picture, but the sharks weren't really bad guys in it. Like, the sharks were kind of like, okay, there's this horrible corporate thing going on, and there's sharks. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, it was kind of out of way. I mean, the sharks ate people. There was a really hot uh, tech geek that did all the tech lines. You know, there's always that, like, you know, character actor that sits in front of a desk, and she's either, like, a super nerdy or super hot, and she's, like, the, and they actually played with that trope a little bit, and I actually enjoyed the fuck out of that. Um, but um, hmm. but the, uh, it, 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 the sharks, like, I go to a shark movie, I want to see sharks eat people. And what, how many people, I think, got eaten by the sharks in, in an almost two-hour runtime, Nathan? Not enough. Like like two? Something like really? that. <laughs> yeah. Wow. And, Pe- anyway, people, met their de- people met their demises in plenty of other satisfying ways, but... Yeah, I mean, the sharks had a really low body count. That so, movie was a yeah. lot of fun, though. I, I will... It was, I, it was I had actually never seen the Meg one, and I think that's almost a better thing because none of this made any sense, and I don't think it needed to. Uh, it, 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 I don't, it was convoluted. Plot. That, movie, that movie is what The Asylum 
would do if they had a budget. That's exactly what that movie was. <laughs> okay. So and I, cool, do, I, do, I do not. I do not mean that as a slight in any possible way. <laughs> so, okay. Yeah. So yeah. So those are the movies we got in the most. Uh, talk to Talk to Me was actually pretty darn good. Um, it was a great teen horror film. Um, and played with the trope of talking to the dead in new and interesting ways. Once again, Australia cinema knocking it out of the park because they do. Um, and uh, um, I highly recommend. It might even I don't know if it'll make my top ten this year, but if I did a top twenty, it's definitely fall in there somewhere. Okay, we also watched one that I have very very mixed feelings about, which was Last Voyage of the Demeter. Oh, yeah, we did the Elevator movie. We saw that, too. <laughs> I wanted to like that movie so much more than I did. Oh. Yeah. I, I, the script is really good. The Most of the performances, spot on. There were just certain things about, like, I did not like the, the CGI did not look good. There's no excuse for a movie that costs that much to have CGI that looks like that. Mm. And number two... It. I have the, a lot of the same problem with that movie I have with Hereditary and a bunch of other movies. That movie should have ended five minutes before it did. They tacked on an extra ending that they didn't need that I think hurt the movie. And, and it made no sense. Um, the one trope in the book they should not have fucked with, they did. And I was a little disappointed in that. I, I think it would have worked better if it was actually shot on a boat. And I think that, you know, like, like the Pearl, for example, if they shot it on the Pearl, it would have worked because um, the problem is it was gorgeous, but it didn't feel like they were on a boat. It felt like they were on a set, you know, and, and a huge boat at that, like the boat was so big. And one of the things about boats that you can't really capture on a set is the claustrophobia that it would be like to have a vampire on your ship. <laughs> Excuse me. Certainly. Yeah. Um, so, but, but. I'm, I'm, try, I'm trying so hard. Like I'm trying so hard not to start singing I'm on a boat right now. So <laughs> this conversation is making it difficult. I did post that meme at the time. Um, I got to see it with the director and a couple of the producers. And uh, I really enjoyed it. And I didn't mind the second ending because I liked how they did it and what it, they set it up for. Um, the the director said there was surprisingly little uh, CG in the movie for the most part. I mean, flying stuff, yeah. And, yeah, it could have looked better. But overall, atmosphere and everything, I, I, everyone was saying alien on a boat and as opposed to on a ship, I guess. But, uh, yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. I, I'm Looking forward to watching it again during the madness. Well, it'll definitely be ATB, as that is Dracula himself. Yes, indeed. Uh, so, yep, been starting to work on that too. Been deep diving uh, Hammer <laughs> movies lately. Hey, there was so. there was one there was one that I watched complete that we watched together actually completely cold went in didn't know a thing about it but I thoroughly enjoyed it was the tank. Oh yeah, we saw the tank. That was good. Uh, yeah, it, it, basically, uh, it's a movie about a couple that inherits a house in, where was it? Oh, it was in, in, in Raven's Neck of the 
lived. It was like uh, like Yaquitahead in that area of yeah, uh, ab- absolutely gorgeous scenery. But they inherit a mansion and find out that they're <laughs> that, well that they got more than they bargained for. I'll just say that. <laughs> but it's called the Tank, and it's really good. Everyone, uh, go check that one out. Yeah, it, it, and you recommend going into it blind. I go into it blind. I didn't know nice. a thing about this movie. All I saw, I just saw it on a list of new releases and just randomly picked it. And I'm glad yeah. I did. Yeah, it was all right. It was good, and you know, it is my kind of movie. So uh, yeah, it takes place in the Pacific Northwest, not the Northeast, as I said <laughs> earlier. Uh, and uh, you know, last unspoiled coast in Portland, Oregon, or or Washington, like that border area. Um, and uh, it's really pretty. The location is really cool. I mean, I mean, come on, it's the it's the Oregon coast, which is absolutely stunning, especially on the fall. So, um, <clears throat> so uh, speaking of of seeing things, I'm gonna throw it to Aaron first because. Ray, I'm gonna then throw it to Raven because Aaron has the interview coming up. So, real briefly, anything you want to highlight, Aaron, while you, that you've done recently? I got to do the um, WGA SAG-AFTRA Horror Day strike in front of the Netflix building, and that was pretty cool. A uh, bunch of horror stars showed up uh, early in the morning. Uh, we got to take some pictures. And, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, union strong man, so I was down with that. Uh, Natalie and I watched Dune, the 1984 David Lynch, <laughs> on Netflix, because it's going away end of the month, and I still enjoy the F out of that. And uh, going on YouTube, discovered a fan-made edit with a whole bunch of lost, missing uh, footage all weaved together, and I'm starting on that, and I'm really enjoying that. Uh, we hit uh, uh, Las Vegas and uh, Golden Tiki Bar, which was a blast and a half. Uh, my Adventures with Superman on uh, Max is a lot of fun and uh, very anime. It's it's more than Superman done as an anime. It's anime with Superman in it, and it, I kind of liked that. Uh, Star Trek Day this year sucked, um, not least of which because they, for some reason, Paramount and Paramount Plus are completely erasing uh, Star Trek Prodigy. And I I have no idea. I can only assume for the tax write-off. That's the only thing I can figure. Um, It's gotten awards. It's been nominated. It's a great series. The fans love it. And it's complete erasure. It might as well be a fucking pharaoh that fell out of disgrace and has been wiped off of every monument. I don't understand it. But they didn't. And this year, uh, 50th anniversary of Star Trek, the animated series, they did a little feature on animated Star Trek. And they featured Lower Decks, which is a brilliant series, which I really enjoy. It's come back. Natalie and I love the new season. They showed Star Trek, the animated series from back in the day. And there was nothing, not a single thing on uh, their ostensibly children's Star Trek animated show Prodigy just burns my ass. And Natalie and I are uh, almost done making it all the way through Star Wars Rebels, which we're doing simultaneously with Ahsoka. And I'm loving Ahsoka. (laughs) 
could go back with Ahsoka and watch like Cliff Notes of Star Trek Rebels because it's such a mm. direct sequel. I had no idea what the fuck was going on because I haven't <laughs> seen all of Clone Wars or Rebels. And, Am you know, I the I... only one here who watched Rebels? No. No, I watched it. I, okay, it's a rewatch like, for us. Oh, you're rewatching. Yeah, yeah. Okay, God, I was. Yeah, it's I was the first very... watch for Natalie. It's a it's a rewatch for me. Okay, I was I was very surprised by that. Okay, that makes more sense. No, are you kidding? I'm a Star Wars freak. No, I, yeah, I that's, that's why I was like, what? <laughs> I don't want to get into it too much because I'm I'm kind of a mixed feelings about Ahsoka, but mm-hmm. I I understand why people are liking it. So there was one shot. During this current one with the whales, the hyper the hyperspace whale yeah, things. Yeah. Um, if you look at the, the shot, the lighting, the way she's standing on the ship, the way it was shot, it's straight up of Nazca Valley of the Wind. Like it was almost. The oh, cover I buy that. Of, yeah. Yeah. So that it had to me, it has a really a Miyazaki vibe to it. Uh, oh, so, um, Dave Filoni is a full-on Miyazaki fan. There was a whole episode where he stole Howl's Moving Castle for um, the old uh, guys from Clone Wars. No, I guess that was Rebels. Um, but it was a great episode, and the tank was totally Howl's Moving Castle. Completely. It was, uh, yeah. Completely. Okay, so yeah. Yeah, no. He, <laughs> I, I was like, those are the ohms from Nausicaa, except they're flying. You know, yep. it looked just like that. So I, I, I now absolutely, I've been trying to get Nathan for, I would say, legitimately a year or so to see Nausicaa. He's never seen it because he doesn't like anime. Oh, man. And, and he really should see Nausicaa. I'm, Nausicaa a, I'm, is a, I'm okay with that one because I'm okay with that one because Yeah, there's bugs. big bugs. <laughs> so as we all know, I'm, I'm I'm a bug guy. So. Well, <laughs> oh, one other thing. Well, um, has anyone watched Gamera Rebirth yet? No, not yet. I'm not going to say anything, but watch it. But I do want to say I have watched many times now the Godzilla Minus Zero trailer. And I can't be more yeah. excited for a, a Godzilla film in a long time. So, uh, yay. Um, all right, Raven. Oh. I... We'll come back to you, Aaron, because you've got a lot to talk about. No, no worries, Joe. Um, you always have a lot to talk about, though. Uh, Raven, <laughs> uh, not only have you been watching a shit ton of films, you started posting your viewings. Yeah, I'm just posting. Well, my I uh, had to say goodbye to my service dog two weeks yeah, ago. Mm-hmm. And it's been really hard. Um and I need massive distraction, so the madness is good for that, and theater is good for that, but I still have too much time with my brain. And so um, I'm just hosting like a movie-watching club sort of thing um, every, almost every day. Every day except for Mondays, there's something going on, and... Um, it's been pretty sweet so far. You can either like watch on your own copy and comment on the thread or hang out in my Zoom room and then we MST3K stuff. <laughs> and we're, we're going to gonna... use a similar version of that for the madness during the group watches. Excellent. I wasn't sure if it was Contras uh, approved yet, but that what that is <laughs> definitely an option that well, I'm happy to 
post Hope if needed. Yeah, so we, uh, we're going to talk about that soon. Um, we're going to have uh, a group watch. We do have a date for the group watch, um, and it's going to be the – it's a Thursday this year, October 12th, I believe. Yes, All right. on the, the, yeah, eve of, a, the eve of Friday, October yeah. 13th. Uh, yeah, because we decided we wanted to keep Friday the 13th open because there's going to be so much shit going down. People are going to want to go do stuff, mm-hmm. including us. So, um, yeah, this year's Madness has a Friday the 13th in it. So, I mean, really. Seriously. And our guest is going to be at Son of Monster Palooza on the 13th. That's correct. Um, I actually, and uh, that's, and um, their panel from this last month is on YouTube, if you want to see it. Yeah, uh, so, so, uh, so, yeah, um, I'm so excited about that. So, uh, anything else, Raymond, other than, and, and I really am sorry about Buttons. I know you loved her. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, I'm just, uh, just went hard, so <laughs> I appreciate the distraction. Well, we're going to be up to our bi- um, eyeballs and necks in blood-sucking teens very, very soon. So, in math, lots of math. So, or as we call it, say that. All right. So, My old uh, nemesis. <coughs> so, any standouts in the movies you've been watching, or are they all rewatches? For me? Yeah. Um, yeah, so far it's just been, uh, well, mostly rewatches. Uh, on Sunday was pretty fun. It was like everyone suggests the title, and then I put them all in a randomizer. And it was a pretty good trifecta between Stay Tuned um, followed by Break Into Electric Boogaloo, <laughs> and then finally Kiwi's Big Adventure. Yeah. <laughs> so that Raven was, made that me watch a bad like Steven Seagal film, if that's not being redundant. <laughs> Which one? <laughs> I can't even remember the name of it. It was it like was a later one. Yeah. It was, it was bad. It hurt it's, me. It's like a one-word title, one. I think it was like... 2014. Mm. It's late. He he obviously was not in the shape to do any of the fighting his character was supposedly doing. And then, of course, all the action movies that night had inappropriately aged, like, love interest. But his was yeah. the grossest, like, combination. Because we also watched Stolen that night with Nicolas Cage, and his girlfriend <laughs> looks like his daughter. <laughs> was it Final Justice? Well, yeah, that's it. That sounds right. Okay. Yeah, that was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> but it was fun. But it was a lot of fun. It really was. Yeah. Yeah, that was a first. That was a first watch for me, and the last. Me too. <laughs> Well, we're still try- I'm still trying to figure out what the um, uh, the, the group watch is going to be. Um, so I'll, I'll do that soon. But we do have your lesbian vampire list ready to go. Uh, mm-hmm. So yay! Uh, so we're. I, mean, I, I, I was pushing for the group watch to be 
70s Euro sleaze vampires. And it seems like those two lists would have an awful lot of crossover. You did enough damage last year with the witchcraft, okay? Sit down, mister. <laughs> oh, no. You don't even want to know what one of my choices for uh, Secret oh, God. this year. Oh, God. I, not, all of the, not all of the movies I suggest to people are terrible. <laughs> so I'm going to make Tanya's Island look like an Oscar-worthy uh, venture with the choice I just made. See, you can't put all the heel heat on me. Well, you know, until I recommend somebody watch a Bigfoot rape movie, I think I'm kind of the clean <laughs> one over here. Oh, this is how I think rape of it. is just the tip of the iceberg, dude. Oh, there's God. A, there's, there's okay, a, please, not that phrase. Any other phrase. Yeah, ju- just the tip. <laughs> didn't quite no. Yeah, oh, the Yeti, that knuckle catch. Oh. <laughs> If it makes you feel better, think of it as a think of it as a Rick Baker special effects suit. Oh, I really hope Mr. Stone isn't listening already. <laughs> you know, not all Dracula movies are good. I just want to say nope, that. Fair. I mean, That's most true. of them are. I mean, That's fair. Um, <laughs> I'm not even sure I'd say most. I, I'm a fan of uh, horror comedy, as you know, and. Dracula Dead and Loving It is one of the worst oh, uh, horror comedies ever. That was ever. one of my first advanced screenings I had ever had in my entire life. And I really? regretted every minute of it. So, <laughs> and I'm a huge Mel Brooks fan. I thought it would be yeah. natural. It'd be a natural fit for Mel Brooks to parody Dracula. And Boy, did that shit hump the bus. Yeah, it's still going to be worth the <laughs> automatic triple bonus because it's Dracula. If I could yeah. ban it, I would. But, you know, I didn't tell them. But, no, but the movie, I'm, I'm, but one of my secret choices makes that movie look glorious. Oh, dear God. Natalie yeah, says we should bad. get extra points for Dracula dead and loving it. <laughs> <laughs> How about just some extra quaaludes? That'd be Ooh, fine. Yes, please. Okay. <laughs> okay, if we had any. I'm not Deal. rich enough for that. So, <laughs> but anyway, so, so yes, uh, so next week at 9 o'clock, we are going to have our normal introduction to our show, and then, uh, you know, we say, hey, 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 and we all say our hey, hey, hey's, and then, uh, I will read the rules live. Now, unfortunately, Raven will not be able to make it, and that is because oh. you are, like you mentioned already, you have a show coming up, and you start rehearsals. You want to talk about your show? Oh, uh, sure. It's a world premiere by trans playwright Mickey Gillette, and it's called They, Them, There, and it's set at a queer youth center, and it's kind of like... The Breakfast Club for trans kids, trans teens, uh, and it opens September 28th and runs for three weeks at Grinds and Vines in Southeast Portland, which is a black-owned wine and coffee bar. And uh, all tickets are gay AF. Give as you're able, friends. Nice. And if you go to Fuse Theater Company's website and you want to get a ticket, you can put any price in down to $0 to reserve your ticket. 
and I would do that fast because uh, they're they're going pretty quickly, and there's a really small house. So uh, mm. once it's sold out, like that's it. And what days are those again? The twenty eighth through what? I uh, I fly back opening weekend, uh, and they go longer. So I need to look at my calendar. <laughs> mm. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Fifteenth is closing. All right. So the twenty, so twenty eighth through October fifteenth, and you, if you do go see the show while well, it's in the madness, even though it's not in theme, it is lesbians. So uh, you'll get. I will allow it as an outside event. So nice. Of course, and if you get a picture with Raven, it's an extra five points right there. Always yeah. in the madness. When you take a picture with a judge or a contestant, and you post it, you get extra points. So. Now, we'll talk about madness in detail next week because, but, you know, let's start a little bit of warming up, and there's nothing more awesome for a warm-up about vampires than covering Universal Monsters. And um, I think our guest who's on the line would would, would totally agree with this. Uh, he's a screenwriter and an author. Uh, most of his books are related to film in some way, and that's no exception to his most current book, which is It's Alive, which is a historical fiction novel about the making of Frankenstein in the 30s. Uh, please welcome to the show, author Jillian David Stone. Welcome. You're on with the Sexy Witches, sir. Hi there. How are you guys doing tonight? I'm a little Very well. weather, but we're glad you're here. Thank you. Oh, my, my pleasure. Glad, glad to be on. Now, uh, the panel is myself. I am Liz Gray. I'm the head huntress. Though you've already know Aaron, and he's going to be leading the interview tonight. So, and then we have Nathan from Georgia, and we have Raven, who's currently in Portland. Uh, so we're all on the line. We're all huge Universal <laughs> Hammer traditional. Uh, can you hear me? Yeah, uh, uh, I can hear you. Yes. Okay. Yeah, my 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 thing just went dead. <laughs> I was like making sure. Well, I hate it when that happens. Um, well, I know. So, um, but uh, we are huge fans of Universal, Hammer, obviously, Aaron, huge nerd. Him and I are partners of Prime, San Diego Comic Con. Uh, yeah. So, um, and you, uh, not only are you one of us, but you actually write about it. So, we, we well, that's not about so, well, so, I'm going to hand it over to Aaron. Well, why don't you introduce, introduce yourself to my audience and Tell them where you got your background and talk a little bit about your new book. Sure. Uh, well, it's great, great to be on with all of you. My name is Julian David Stone. I'm the author of a new novel uh, called It's Alive, about the days leading up to the beginning of production on uh, the original 1931 classic. Uh, I had, uh, for many years, I was a screenwriter here in Los Angeles, and in the last 10 years or so, I've transitioned to writing novels, and... Uh, I tend to write about, uh, because I was in the film business, about the entertainment business. A couple of my novels have been about that. And again, my latest one is It's Alive. And it's uh, I've been a fan since I can remember of the Universal Monsters, but I'm relatively new to the world of conventions and events. And it's been a, been a lot of fun over the last year. I had no idea how many conventions. Every weekend, it seems like there's 15 <laughs> of them going on around around the country. And uh 
yeah, I, I, I want to get to all of them. <laughs> so, nice. It's, uh, it's been it's been fun. And I, uh, uh, my very first convention was here was up in Maryland at the Horrifying. Um, can you still hear me, folks? Yeah. yeah. I, I'm okay. Ah. Sound problems and blog talk radio go together like peanut butter and jelly. Uh, so, uh, but uh, it's um, it's interesting to uh, like, yeah, you you you're coming on like it's already peaked. Like it used to even be bigger than that. COVID killed like a third of them, of course. Uh, really? But we're all we're yeah. all yeah we're all seasoned conventioners in, um, on this panel. So uh, I noticed that the people have been posting your panels on YouTube. So that's awesome. So you are available. People can watch your and listen to your podcast, uh, guest spots, like you're doing today. So thank you again for coming on the show. Anyway, Eric, sure. it's all, the floor is yours. Why don't you go ahead and ask our uh, luscious guest here anything you want, uh, as long as it's related to Universal Monsters and his books and whatever. And, and sir, I would ask you, Mr. Jill, uh, Mr. Stone, we're going to also want to ask you a bunch about vampires tonight because my Halloween contest this year, which starts next week, is, <laughs> feature, is featuring in particular Dracula um, and vampires. So. Oh, great. I, I tend to know a little bit more about Frankenstein, but I certainly know a lot about the uh, the 1931 Dracula. That's a big part of my book, too. Yep, exactly. So, all right, Aaron, I will shut up now. Yeah, and and fellow sexy witches, please chime in, of course, anytime you got a question. Um, uh, first off, uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. I uh, first met you uh, in the audience uh, watching your presentation at Monster Palooza, and my wife and I were blown away. We really enjoyed it, and the thing that stuck with me from that was just how meticulous your research was. Um, I I don't think I have seen a better prepared presentation at any of the conventions I've ever been to. Um, I was going to ask you to start. How did you dive in? to this world and what did you use for your research? Sure, absolutely. Well, thank you, first of all, for coming to the Monster Palooza event. That was fun because I had done other presentations, but that was the first convention that I did with this, you know, where I was speaking to the core audience. I'd done it mostly with film museums and the response had been fantastic, but it was yeah. so fun doing it, you know, for, for, um, you know, for the crowd, it, it it almost felt like it turned into the Rocky Horror Picture Show. People were sort of <laughs> responding, you know, every time I would mention Lugosi or Karloff. So yeah. I, I loved it. And, and I hope to do more of them. That's something, you know, like I said, I'm trying to get in contact with more of these conventions because it, it's all so new to me. Um, and I'm actually going to be back at Monster Palooza in a couple of weeks. They've asked me to do an encore presentation of it. So I'm really excited so, about that. So, um, anyway, oh, great. Well, thank you. But to get to your question, um, I love research to the point that I almost have to stop myself and say, okay, you need to go and start write, writing now. So I just dwelled in. I love it. And what I did was uh, I, you know, obviously there's been a lot of, you know, nonfiction books written about the subject matter. And of course, you know, I, I peruse all of those as one would do. But the main source that I did was I did my own research. I did a lot of it myself. I also worked with a researcher where I would um, email her and say, you know, okay, I need you to look into this. And she'd send me a bunch of articles and I would read them. My 
favorite thing when doing research is contemporaneous information, mm. not the books written 50 years later looking back. It's reading in the moment. So I read a lot of, you know, the Hollywood Reporter from the, the late 20s and the 1930s. Um, yeah. I read, you know, Variety, all, all the different existing magazines, Photoplay magazine. I watched a lot of great movies. Um, and in terms of when the story to me just as a writer kind of moved to the next level was when I, I was really deep into the Universal Monsters research and the story wasn't entirely working. And that, I sort of had an epiphany and I said, you know what? I need to look larger. I need to not just look at the monster films. I need to look at everything that was happening in Hollywood at this time, because then you get the context of just how unusual and wonderful these films are because they were so different than what Hollywood was doing at that time. So that's when things really took off when I started just getting to know the world of Hollywood in the late twenties and the early thirties. So that was a big part of it too, reading the, the monthly uh, movie magazines was really fun because, you know, just like today, it's constantly changing who's in, who's out, you know, and mm. articles are as- asking questions the same way they'll write today about, you know, is, is Nicole Kidman's career over, you know, that, that kind of thing. And back <laughs> then it was, is, is Clara Bow's career over, you know, it's, it's, you know, it, nothing changes. And that was fun to read in, in uh, the contemporaneous <laughs> magazine. So, so that was a big part of it. Just reading everything I could get the, the Los Angeles times, uh, any newspaper that, you know, I could find anything on Carl Lemley Jr. It was like a real detective, yes. uh, sir, you know, and, and it was always exciting when something would show up. You know, uh, I mentioned it in the presentation that, uh, you know, he gets mentioned, the Lemleys, they were the runners of Universal and the ones responsible for the horror films. They would suddenly just pop up, you know, I'd be reading a 500-page biography, and suddenly there he was in it, you know, and that was always huh. exciting when when – the characters from the novel would show up in somebody's memoir. So that, in short, that's heard in long. Uh, that, that's how it was done. <laughs> Just right for on. the record, Carl Lemley Jr. never really gets the credit he deserves for his incredible like, role in horror, American horror cinema history. Well, um, that's literally the reason I wrote my novel. I mean, you just, I, and, and that's the, the crux of my entire presentation that, you know, I start by sort of listing the, the, you know, the five great horror films that were made when he was running Universal, Dracula, Frankenstein, The Mummy, The Invisible Man, and Bride of Frankenstein. And everybody knows those films. Even people that have never even seen the films know the characters. And people know the actors who were them. They know everything about them, but the person most responsible for them existing, and that was Carl Lemley Jr. And that's, I tell his story and, you know, get to, you know, I wanted to find out why he chose to make these movies and, and all of it. And that's literally the mission I was on with my novel, to, to get him the attention that I feel he deserves. Awesome. And, and I think you succeeded brilliantly. I, I, in a book that has as main characters alongside Junior, you have his equally fascinating dad, you've got Bela Lugosi, uh, you've got uh, Boris Karloff, and Junior comes out the most uh, fascinating character to me from your novel. Oh, well, that, that, that's good to hear. You know, I, I love all of them. You know, I'm a, I'm a fan. You know, it was written from the standpoint of my love for all of them, and, you know, and it's just you know, as a writer, it's so fun to try to get into the head of Bela Lugosi and Karloff. And, you know, I, and I like, I like to sort of 
because I spent so much time in the film business, I like to sort of strip back to what they really were at the time of this. And the truth of it was going into the making of, you know, Frankenstein, Lugosi had become a star. Boris Karloff was a starving actor for the most part. Mm -hmm. He'd been in Hollywood for 10 years. He'd made over 80 films. Nobody knew who he was. The, there's, um, I don't talk about this in the presentation. I sometimes bring it up in the Q&A, but there's a film that comes out right after he finishes shooting Frankenstein. He shot it before Frankenstein, but it comes out right afterwards. And in that film, his character is literally listed as waiter. He doesn't even have a name. Wow. That shows you where his career was at. And then obviously, this is another thing I talk about, how quickly everything changed once Frankenstein came out. Um, after Frankenstein comes out, six months, six to eight months later, he stars in The Mummy, where on the poster, he doesn't even have a first name. He's Karloff. He's now so famous. <laughs> number one. Number two, his name is as large as the title of the film. So he goes from <laughs> complete unknown to that big of a star and, re and maintains it for the rest of his career. He really never has a down point in his entire career, you know, by the 60s. You know, he's, he's so famous, he's doing commercials and everything. He, he, he didn't have the struggles that, unfortunately, Lugosi had, because Lugosi was a huge star at the time of the making of Frankenstein, but had a lot of ups and downs for the remaining, you know, uh, time that he was alive. The, uh, the struggling actor aspect of Boris comes across very strongly in your novel, uh, how he's constantly, when is this going to end? <laughs> he suffers yeah. uh, like a Job's <laughs> journey in Hollywood. Um, you did mention that you are a fan, and that very much comes through in the writing. What were the monster kid events that started you? Well, I, I first discovered them in the, in the late 70s. You know, my, my entry into the world was through the model kits, the classic Aurora model kits, the, oh, yeah. the glow in the dark. That was literally the first <laughs> thing. I think I, I think I actually built those before I had seen any of the movies. And then I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area, and there was a kind of a, I mean, every town had one, but we had, you know, the, the sort of the, the, and this is kind of what brought the monsters back, which is, again, what I talk about in the presentation. When they started playing on television, we had a show called Creature Features. And Bob while Logan! watching that, from your your neck of the woods i'm a oh, very i i grew up with uh, bob wilkins he, he's a genius oh, so did i and that's where i first saw them as a kid i would watch you know i'd see them on there and i'd build the model kits and you know that's how how i entered it in fact uh, you can find it on uh, on YouTube, and I, you know, God bless YouTube. Everything is on there. I was interviewed <laughs> by Bob Wilkins when I was about 17 years old as part of like a young filmmakers thing. Oh my gosh! I, yeah, and I couldn't believe it. I looked it up one day, and there it was. You, you can you, you can see me in all my my glory. Yeah, I met him a few times, but it was it was fun being interviewed by him. That is so It's not a contest. Yeah. Or anything, but <laughs> I did kind of grow up with Elvira on KHK oh. Channel Nine in Los Angeles. But you know, it's it's good. It's all good. Yeah. Um, we also had John you... Stanley on Saturdays on Channel Forty Four. So um, yeah, we had we had two good horror hosts in our hood. Just so yeah. you know, we did. The other guy that we had wasn't so much a horror host, but Tom Hatton, mm -hmm. who did the Family Film Festival would throw us uh, weird things every now and again. And he also hosted Popeye in the morning, and he would draw cartoons uh, uh, of 
Popeye and other people. Um, well, but we're getting off. The same thing. Uh, he oh, actually yeah? had an afternoon show on Channel 2 in Oakland, uh, and that's where I saw the original Ralph Bakshi 60s uh, Spider-Man. He introduced me oh, to wow. Star. Uh, Battleship Yamamoto played on that show sometimes. I, I got yeah, I love that it. Show. It was called Star Blazers at the time. Uh, yeah. Vince, Vince I can Vince sing the theme song. John <laughs> So I, I know that uh, our leftist guest probably has in the, his subconscious all that stuff in his head as he was involved. Oh yeah, no, I the, the, <laughs> the afternoon show you're the afternoon show you're talking about was Captain Cosmic. That was yeah, Bob Wilkins. I, yeah, and two P two was his his robot. This was after Star Wars, so you know it was oh, yeah. an attempt to cash in on it. But no, I used to watch that too. And embarrassingly, I watched it into high school, <laughs> so oh, I was still watching it that, then. Man. I watched it in high school. Uh, yeah. Fighting with the gamma lungs, we won't stop until yeah. we've won. Great job, <laughs> I guess. Great job. No, I you're in the wrong company good. to feel embarrassed about something. Yeah, like that, you're right. <laughs> I, know. I, I, I shouldn't. I, you're right. I shouldn't say that. I, I remember it fondly. One of us. One of us. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, sure. The um the overarching thing in the novel seems to me this dichotomy between. Uh, Carl Sr., who everyone called Uncle Carl, mm-hmm. and Junior. And they're very different approaches to movies in general and running the studio specifically. I was wondering if you could talk about that a little. Sure. So, you know, that, again, was another thing when I delved into their story, that it was such a great father and son story. Um Carl Sr. was the one who started the studio and, you know, Junior was his kid and he puts him in charge of the studio when he was 21. And like most kids, they want to do it completely different than the way that their father did it. So Junior decided to make a lot less films and spend a lot more money on them. Plus, he wanted to make more edgy material, which is something we're all thankful for because he wanted to make the horror films. His father Mm -hmm. thought it was a terrible idea and wanted no part of it. Um, so, you know, it's just the classic father and son story with the, the son wanting to go in a different direction. And, and, you know, junior was of another generation. He was of the twenties where his father was really of the, the previous century. So he had a much more, a much younger sensibility and, and that's what he brought to what he did. And again, fortunately for all of us, that included the horror films. Here, here. And, and the thing that's kind of odd and it's touched on in the book is that, uh, Uncle Carl had, as everyone called him and loved him, had had success with Lon Chaney films. That's true. He had a lot of success with them. But, you know, this is something that people don't really understand about Lon Chaney. He made a ton of films. And, yes, makeup was almost always a part of it, but he didn't only make horror films. There are so many films that he made where he played, you know, underworld figures and criminals and things. They weren't yeah. all horror films. So in the, even though um, uh, Carl Sr. or Uncle Carl had had success with Phantom and the Opera and Hunchback, to him, those were works that had come from classic literature. Ah. So he didn't quite look at them in the same way, even though Frankenstein and Dracula came from books they weren't considered as the, in their original source material quite in the league of Phantom of the Opera and, and Hunchback. So, so that, that had a little bit to do with why the perception was different. And, and also, again, because it wasn't the only thing he, uh, Lon Chaney Sr. made a ton of films for Universal that weren't horror films. 
and mm. I watched all of them. <laughs> so it was right fun. He, 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 yeah, he, he was amazing. The the bit that you have very, very early on in the novel where um, uh, Carl Sr. has paid a young lady <laughs> at um, one of the uh, Dracula – I guess it was actually a number of different Dracula uh, showings. Could you talk about that? Sure. So that's on, that's actual historical fact. You know, if you look at, um, uh, you know, you, you can see pictures of it. Like it may not have been for Dracula, but I, there's oh. a photo that I always remember. It may have been for Bride, but they did do it with Dracula where they would like park an ambulance in front of the theater with a couple of nurses, you know, to sort of drive up the ballyhoo. But the person who told the story that sort of gave me the idea to use it was, was Forrest J. Ackerman. He talked about going to see Frankenstein in the original production and somebody like, you know, when the monster was first real, uh, first revealed, you know, one of the greatest reveals of a character in the history mm-hmm. of cinema, the way he backs in and turns, I mean, it's, it's stunning and the editing, everything about it. Um, when he saw it the first time, somebody got up and uh, a woman jumped up and ran out of the theater screaming. Well, he said he stayed, for, he stayed for the next showing. The same woman jumped up out of her seat at the same time and ran screaming out of the, the theater. So it was That's a plan. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, and that was the kind of stuff that the, particularly Carl Sr. was kind of the king of that type of stuff. He, uh, one, one of the famous incidents that he, uh, Carl Emily Sr., long before Jr. was in charge, really created the star system in Hollywood. He was the first to take actors and publicize them by their names. Before then, they were kind of known as the Biograph Girls, sort of the movie company that they worked for. He started using them by their names. And what he famously did is he seduced a great actress away from another uh, studio. It wasn't a studio at the time, but another company. And her name was Florence Lawrence. And she was a huge star, like around 1912, 1913. And Carl Sr. got her to come over to Universal. Well, part of the Ballyhoo that he came up with, he, he leaked this story that she had died. And there was this huge uproar that this woman had died. And, oh, my God, then they, they leaked the story that, no, it's not true. She's alive. In fact, she's going to appear in St. Louis, Missouri in a week. Well, when she showed up in St. Louis, Missouri, there was like 50,000 people there to greet her coming off the train. So, you know, because they had created this, this whole false story about it. And this was the kind of fun stuff that Carl Sr. would do. And I just found that stuff, you know, in the early days of cinema, just so irresistible. And, you know, it's kind of what they do today. You know, we're, we've just seen Barbie be this massive hit. And, yeah. you know, it, their, their, their marketing was, was unbelievable. And the Barbenheimer thing, whoever came up with that idea, <laughs> I mean, my God, you know, Seriously. brilliant. You know, yeah. Just they're how, they're saying that it, it saved theaters and brought, oh, brought everybody yeah. back. And <laughs> Yeah, but, the, the know, biggest shot. I, I, I disagree I'm, with I, that, but anyway, oh, go ahead. <laughs> about what do you what do you disagree with that it saved theaters or just the? I think I think that that um, this this season has actually been a lot stronger than people think it's been because if you look at Barbenheimer and you could, and how well they did, right in the wings was Super Mario Brothers, which was also a multi million dollar film. Uh, there's a, mm-hmm. there, there was a lot of box office success this year. It was just that people are just bored with Marvel films, and we need more original stories. Right. 
Yeah, no, no, you're absolutely right. The the biggest shock in all of it, like I always felt that Barbie was going to do well, was what happened with Oppenheimer because, like, I'm sort of the core audience for it. You know, I'm a big World War II buff, and I've written a lot about that. But the fact that you had, the, you know, so many people showing up for a three-hour movie where they basically just talk for three hours it was, you know, that that was the real stroke of genius, how that got, a, you know, that got pulled into it. You know, it's a terrific film, but I never imagined it would do the business that it did. It, it, well, was, I don't think they did either because Chris Nolan's last movie bombed. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> so yeah. I, no, I'm sure. No, nobody, like, nobody you could argue that Oppenheimer that. bombed, but never mind. Uh-huh. <laughs> 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 Sorry, I had to. It was just, it was sitting there. Well um, Thank you. Um, <laughs> continuing with what you were saying about uh, Carl Sr. being such an innovator, uh, there's a scene around a poker table, and I don't want to give too much away because this is a book that's really worth uh, getting. And um, just to confirm, we can get that at your website, right? Oh, well, or at Amazon. The book is available. Okay. Uh, a lot of you can get it through a lot of bookstores, but obviously Amazon has it. My website, uh, you can get signed copies from my website, JulianDavidStone.com. Um, you can get that there, and you can also see the other stuff that I've written. It's all on uh, uh, on the website, and and again, Amazon is is a good source. That's where you can get the Kindle of it too. So oh nice, um, yeah. So uh, around the poker table, uh, mm-hmm. Junior kind of has a revelation about his dad, and as you were. Uh, referencing the the star system that was dad setting up the mm-hmm. studios here on the west uh after having a huge fight with edison right uh, he was really an innovator oh uh, unbelievable the, the story i love to tell is that universal studios opened on the spot that it is today in 1915 and guess when the universal studio tour opened in 1915 so he, he knew what he was doing yeah he he just knew you 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 know I talk about it you would you pay a quarter you could watch you know these were silent movies so they had these mm-hmm. grandstands that ran along they had uh, a row of sets where like they might be shooting a comedy next to a drama next to a you know like a a, a bar fight a western all these different yeah. things uh, right a, wet, a western and you would sit in the grandstand and because it was silent they encouraged people to boo and cheer and you know they <laughs> sold seats in it they sold food. They sold uh, little, you know, pictures of the movie stars. He he just knew how to Damn. squeeze a dollar out of everything. And just right from the beginning, you could get a bus oh, yes. on Hollywood Boulevard that would take you right to the studio for the tour. And again, this all started right right out of right out of the gate. Mm. Genius, genius, I says. Um, yeah. You also made a contention during the presentation. It's it's not really mentioned in in the novel. But uh, I was talking to my friends because I, I took the novel with me to Las Vegas, read it out by the pool. We were all talking. You say that it's alive uh, might be the very first movie catchphrase to really catch on with the American public. And we sat around uh, at dinner after the pool talking about it, and we couldn't come up with anything else before it. So I, I think you're right. Yeah, well, you know, 1931 is only four years into the sound era, and I couldn't think of anything else that you can say to anybody, you know, because when I was, like, deciding on the title, I would show, like, what do you think of this? And, like, everybody knew exactly what it was from, including people who had never seen the movie. 
you know? Wow. So, uh, yeah, it's, you know, it's just such a famous phrase. And obviously it's, it's an incredible moment in, in the film, that moment when Colin Clive, who is so amazing as, as Dr. Frankenstein, he says it seven times in that scene, you know, when the monster first moves in the original script, in the original script, it's only twice. So he was just in the moment as an actor. <laughs> Genius. And it works so well for the novel because in the span of three days, and, and what I love is that you use actual headlines uh, and, mm-hmm. and story titles in three days. It's a big question, a huge question, whether or not Frankenstein as a movie is alive. Right, right. Now, you know, to be fair, I dramatize, you know, that's all based on real fact. And the decision does appear to, you know, everything I say to have come down to the last minute, you know, who it was going to be. You know, I took liberty creating the scenes. It's, it's a work of fiction. Uh, but that is all true. And all of the stuff that uh, the articles and the quotes, that's all real. In fact, the very first mention, which is in the book of Karloff starring in Frankenstein, is in the paper on the first day of shooting. There's no mention of him having anything to do with the film, uh, except you know the except there is the which is part of my presentation. There's a famous letter that was sent uh, to Colin Clive or was waiting for Colin Clive when he came to America to star in it a couple of weeks before uh, the shoot the beginning of of shooting on Frankenstein, and that's where James Whale, the director, famously says in the letter that it'll either be Boris Karloff or Bella Lugosi as the monster you know, just two weeks before the, the start of production. And that, that was kind of my jumping off point when I was like, there it is, you know. They were still trying to figure this out right down to the last minute. Amazing. And Whale, am I wrong that it's Whale that injects humor into Frankenstein and Invisible Man? Because more than the other horror, it seems like there's more going on there. Oh, a hundred percent. You know, this is something that I talk about in the presentation and again, often in the Q and a, the reason to me that these films are still alive, bad pun today <laughs> is because, is because of the humor and the sensibility that he brought to it. Because, you know, there's a lot of, you know, good dark films that were made in the twenties, you know, before then, like that, you know, a uh, cabinet of Dr. Calgary, Nosferatu, mm-hmm. you know, all, all fantastic films, but they're very heavy and very dry. There's such, there's great horror in those, in the, in the universal films, but there's great humor. And I feel that's why they caught on so much again with kids that they sort of responded like, Oh, this is scary, but it's also kind of fun. And, and that's, Mm. you know, I that's what I responded to as a kid. To me, the combination that is the magic of the universal monster, it's James Whale's sensibility and Carl Freund, who was the cinematographer on Dracula and directed The Mummy. He was a German cinematographer, so he, it's a cross between the German expressionism and the sensibility of whale that you got the magic you know, of, of, uh, of the Universal Monster films. It really is magic, too. I was lucky enough to get a ticket to Famous Monsters Film Fest at the beginning of the year, and the theme was Universal Horror. And we got to see just about every classic you can think of on the big screen at the Chinese. And yeah, I, you know, I, I went to it too. I, I, uh, I, I went there. I think I saw Frankenstein, and I took my son to see uh, Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. And yeah, it was a great festival. It really was. And uh, seeing uh, what was it? I it was Hunchback of, the, of Notre Dame. 
on the giant screen, just, mm-hmm. you know, mere uh, a mile and a half or whatever from where it was filmed. It's just amazing. And, and the power of those images decades later is insane. Um, I was going to ask, uh, there's a, a bit in the novel where Junior's girlfriend, uh, Sydney, kind mm-hmm. of psychoanalyzes Junior and <laughs> his relationship. And I, I have to ask, where does that come from? Uh, now, which thing psychoanalyzes the relationship? In the, in the car when they're driving and she figures out why Frankenstein is so important to him, although he kind of oh, rejects that idea later. But. Yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, you know, I, w- one of the things I, I did is that if you remember in the novel, everybody has a different opinion about why yeah. he wants to make this film. So, she, you know, I, I wanted different people to have an opinion, and ultimately he has his own reason you know, which is kind of the big reveal of the story. Um, you know, Sidney Fox did, you know, again, there's, uh, I talk about this again in the presentation that Junior being, you know, in, in his early 20s and running a studio was constantly dating people and he did date Sidney Fox. That was just something that, you know, I manufactured because I, I wanted to have, you know, naturally she along with the other characters all had opinion why his life was being turned upside down by this production of Frankenstein. And, you know, he was sort of saying, Oh, it's no different. It's like every other film I, I, I make, you know, film films are always crazy. And she was like, no, this one, you know, this is different. Um, So that's kind of what it grew out of. You know, I wanted them all. I thought it would just be kind of fun that they all have a different opinion. And he says, you're all completely wrong. There's nothing different about, Frankenstein compared to everything else I've done. And then in the end, he says, you know what? You, you're right. Frankenstein is different, but you all have the wrong reason. And this is the reason. <laughs> so it's just, you know, it, it, you're always it's a good to, reveal. Yeah. Well, I, it was one of those things that kind of came out of the research, you know, where I discovered, you know, that he'd had some trauma early in his life. And then, uh, you know, other quotes about what his interests were as a, as a young kid, it kind of all came, came together. You uh, decided to go with a novel for this and not a screenplay. Is this something you can see becoming a screenplay eventually? Oh, I would love that. <laughs> uh, believe me, that was that's always been in my head because of, because of my background. But the the freedom of writing it first as a novel is I don't have to cram it into the you know the structure of a screenplay. I can just go wherever the story takes me, you know, and then mm. worry about that later. And so, you know, I can get all those scenes in, you know, part of it is like, you know, who didn't want to be in the makeup room with Jack Pierce when he's putting the makeup on Boris Karloff. So I can write that scene when you're, when you're doing it as a screenplay, you have to think of budget. You have to think of, well, is this needed? We have to cut this so we can have that. So when you do the novel first, you do everything and then you can worry about that later when, Mm. when, and if you have to cut anything out. Have you, uh, thought about casting I as as I was actually getting towards the end of the novel uh Carl Sr. kind of became uh Mel Brooks for me a serious <laughs> Mel Brooks uh, and I was wondering if, if you had any thoughts <laughs> um you know it's I've been asked the question a lot that somebody suggested somebody interesting for Karloff what's his name oh god Michael Shannon not Michael Shannon oh, what, what Shannon. is his yeah it is Michael Shane, yeah, for Carlos, oh, which I thought great. was just, yeah. Ooh, that is uh, good. I, I, yeah, and, and there's a couple of good um, 
who was the the the, the actor in the late the latest Spider Man? I thought he'd be not would be pretty good for Junior. Uh, Tom, not Tom Holland. Oh, Tom yeah. Holland. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking yeah, speaking of Spider Man, I'm gonna throw out um, okay, J.K. Simmons as Jack Pierce. Oh, that's nice. great. Yeah. Yeah. No, he, you know, they're, they're, it's very castable. I think a lot of actors would love to play, you know, certainly would love to play Lugosi and, uh, you know, the other people in it. It's very castable. And uh, oh. I, I, it's a, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to go ahead. Uh, I'll ask later. <laughs> there, there was a little bit of kismet. Um, like a, a month ago, I want to say, I discovered an article on the Clara Bow painting and how it had come up for auction. And <laughs> yeah. uh, that, that was kind of amazing that uh, our first time with Bela starts with that. It was like, what? Um, well, can you the, the, talk a little bit about the rumors? Yeah. Yeah. Well, they're not, I mean, it was true. They did have an affair. I think, you know, again, it's a work of fiction. You move things around. I believe by the time that this is all taking place, their affair was over. Although, you know, I sort of have it, you know, and, uh, you know, they run into each other. She had kind of settled down, but, you know, again, work of fiction, but it's based on the truth. They did have an affair and he did have that painting. There's, uh, I own a copy of it. You know, there's a very famous photo of Lugosi sort of relax, you know, the sort of a lot of was, yeah, stretched out on his uh, lounge underneath the, the naked picture of her that he had throughout his life. Did he ever confirm that it was her or is the, are we all just saying, yeah, that's her? No, I mean, my understanding, you know, and again, I sort of write that he had fun with like whether people thought it was, but my understanding was that it was clearly her. And, you know, I, I don't know what he said to other people at the time, but it's, it's, you know, it's not disputed that the, that the painting is her. Okay. Yeah. Excellent. And, um, uh, as far as your human sources, you mentioned uh, about having a researcher. Uh, did you have? I, I noticed in the thanks at the end, uh, one of the or someone with the last name Lemley, and I was wondering how they're connected and and how they contributed. Yeah, no, that, that's a great question. Um, when, like I said, I I worked with a couple of researchers. Uh, you know, when I sort of reached a point where uh, I'd kind of done as much as I could and I was like, I need to bring in some people that do this professionally. One of them connected me to a woman named Rosemary uh, Hill Lemley, who is a, a cousin, I think, of Junior's. There's no direct link uh, alive back to Carl Lemley Sr. Junior never had any children and his sister had a child, but uh, the her child uh the the would have been the grandson never had any children so the, mm. unfortunately the the bloodline directly to Carl Lemley senior uh doesn't continue but Carl Lemley had a and his wife uh had a ton, had huge families so there's mm-hmm. tons of cousins and 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 uh out there and rosemary was relate is related to one of uh Carl Lemley's brothers. That's, you know, that, that's the way she comes down. And I met with her once and she shared with me, she said she actually spoke to junior on the phone once she never met him, but one of the most gratifying, gratifying things that has happened since the book came out, a lot of the Lemley's reached out to me and they all love the book. And some of them knew junior Um, really well in his later years. 
And they were all so happy because they said he would have loved this. And what was really fascinating, um, and again, this is kind of part, it goes into the presentation because I talk about Junior's story after the horror films. Because the Lemleys end up losing the studio in the mid-30s, when all these other relatives who were younger met Carl Sr. and they, uh, I'm sorry, met Junior like in the, in the 60s and the 70s, he never talked about his time at Universal because to them it was a, it was a business that they had lost. So it was an unpleasant mm. memory. So some of them had no idea because I always asked that. I said, like, did he ever talk about the horror films? Did he? And they said he never, you know, he led, a, he led an active life in terms of socially and a lot of the people that he had known during his time running the studio were still part of his world, but he just seemed to have it. Just never, they just never talked about those films back then. That from from back then. Um, what a pity. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Um, you yeah. mentioned um, uh, Forey, uh, Forrest Ackerman. Did you ever mm-hmm. get to visit his I, I, sanctum sanctorum? I, I, I did once, yes. I uh, I got very fortunate about, I don't know, 20, 30 years ago, there was a screening at the New Art of Metropolis. Uh, mm. I believe it had, a, it had a small orchestra, but anyway, he, he, he hosted it, and it was on a Saturday, and he said, if anybody wants to come tomorrow to my house, I'm having an open house. So the next oh. day, me and a fr- friend went up there, and there weren't a lot of people there. And the one thing that drives me crazy is that I have a great photo of my friend oh, with Forrest J. Ackerman, and I don't know why I didn't hand the camera to my friend and have oh. him take a picture of me, because my friend has, it is the best photo of the two of them, and I remember taking it standing there, and I don't know why to this day I didn't say, okay, now take a picture of me with him. So I did get to, to walk around, uh, you know, the house one day and chat with him. Yeah, yeah that was that was pretty great. Was there anything in the house that stays with you, any artifact or prop? Well, what, what stayed with me, because I'm a little bit uh, of a, a collector of memorabilia and movie posters and stuff, is that he'd have what seemed to be a priceless artifact next to something absolutely worthless. And, and it would have no, like, one, you know, I remember seeing, like, he, I think he had the original um, – Oh, God, uh, armature for, uh, you know, like one of the dinosaurs from King Kong or something mm-hmm. incredible. And then ne- then next to it on the wall were like Star Wars cards taped on the wall, you know, like the, the cheap trading cards. And I just I couldn't get over the dichotomy of like this thing is priceless and this is absolute, you know, and the house was sort of that way. It was very cluttered and filled with you know, sort of random, all part of the genre, but no sort of rhyme or reason between like, no, no acknowledgement that this is a priceless artifact and this is garbage, you know? So I, oh, I hope my wife is listening because that's our house to a T. <laughs> um, you would, you would be shocked though. I, I know back then the Star Wars tops uh, trading cards weren't anything, but you would be amazed what they're going for now graded and, bricked up in plastic it's, it's insane well i know i know that the first series in particular the the blue ones but i'm talking about yep. like you know third and fourth series they're they're not you know i know if you can get yeah certain grades but uh it, it was still you know they're just taped on the wall what's any attempt to even preserve them and then you know so it was uh it, it was great i'm very glad i got together but i'll, I'll always be frustrated by not having a photo well, I, I have to ask, what, what's next for you? What are you turning your eye to? 
Uh, you know, I, I've, thankfully, I'm doing a bunch of, you know, pr- I'm doing my presentation uh, a bunch of times over the next month or two, uh, mm-hmm. and I'm trying to get another novel written, but I, I've been sort of, uh, I haven't been as, as aggressive as I should be, but I'm working sort of more or less, my next novel has to do with the Apollo space race in the 1960s. That's what I've, I've been trying to get uh, get off the ground, no pun intended, again, but... Uh, <laughs> uh, that's what I uh, what I should be spending more time on, but I haven't been particularly this time of year. I mean, I'm very happy to be busy promoting the book, and you know, it's 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 so fun again going to these conventions. I, I hope I get a chance to do the presentation at as many of them as possible because I, I really love it. It's kind of you know the every time I do it, it's such such a rush. It's kind of new to me, and it's so great meeting other people that are just as passionate about those films as I am. I I hope you get to do a, a ton of them and I hope uh, everyone gets a, listening to this gets a chance to go see it because as I say uh, my wife and I were just uh, floored really enjoyed the presentation and how detailed it was how many slides well, do you. you have in your presentation oh you're very welcome how many slides are uh, in the presentation currently you know I, I honestly don't know the total I mean I'm sure I could give you a number if I pulled it up but there, there's a lot <laughs> <laughs> yeah, know, I mean, I I essentially wrote it that way. I sort of because when I had to put this uh, put this thing together, that was sort of a new thing too. It was like, how do you even write a script of it? And I sort of created this system of, you know, three columns, like you know what the slide was, what the image was, what the text was, if there was any, and and I just figured out how I wanted to tell you know Junior's story because one of the things that's been really gratifying is. Uh, you know, I think I tell it in a way that's very entertaining because, you know, it's, it's a fun time. The, you know, mm-hmm. the reason people want to be in Hollywood is it's kind of a fun, sexy, crazy business. And I wanted to bring that to the presentation. I didn't want it to be this sort of dry recital of facts. I wanted to tell a crazy, fun story about a 21-year-old running a movie studio who makes these incredible films, you know, that we all love all these all these years later and, and it, you know, it's a fun story and I wanted the presentation to reflect that. And, and the novel is a hell of a lot of fun. I, I literally laughed out loud uh, twice, uh, scaring the cat one Dude. time. Um, <laughs> and uh, there's even a little, uh, a little pathos too. Um, uh, junior and Carl senior on the bleachers was yeah. a really touching moment. No, thank you. I'm really glad You're to welcome. hear that. Thank you. It, it's so, uh, you know I I know some people aren't uh, sometimes aren't the biggest readers, and the book is also available in an audio book version. If you want to hear, uh, you want to enjoy it that way too. Yeah, right on. I I would actually be interested in that, even though I've, I've read it uh, already. Um, I was going to ask you uh, in in researching uh, Bela uh, if there was anything that I, I mean. I, I really loved your take on him, uh, especially that one little bit at, at Clara Bow's place uh, under the moon. And it, it is kind of awe-inspiring to think of the life that he had and where he came from and where he got to. Oh, th- th- no question. I mean, he, he, he is amazing. You know, here is a person who at three different times in his career – became a star he was a star in his home country in hungary then he became a star in germany and then he became a star in the united states and you know those last two times he wasn't even performing in his native language 
I mean, it's really a remarkable story that just the, the drive, you know, that, that, that he had. And, you know, obviously he had a lot of ups and downs after, uh, you know, Dracula. And I think a lot of that sure. was, you know, he, he, he was kind of a, a bit of a fish out of water where Karloff, you know, when you, when you look at the two men and particularly when you see them in the 30s, Lugosi always seems a little ill at ease where Karloff always seems just the happiest person. He just, he, and it seems very genuine. And I, and I, I think it, you know, one, it must've been easier, you know, being able to, to live in a country that basically speaks your, your language. He, he just mm. had a lighter way about him where Karloff or, or Lugosi always seemed to have a weight on his shoulder. He always seemed a little unsettled compared to Karloff who always just seemed happy. And, you know, like, you know, he has very that, genial. You know, yeah, he just seemed very genial and, you know, sort of, you know, whenever somebody would say something about, oh, isn't it, you know, you've been typecast and he's like, are you kidding? The best thing that ever happened to me was, you know, was that, what do you call it, that jo- jolly green monster or whatever, you know, he said because he had, <laughs> had so many years where where Lugosi had been a star several times. Karloff was completely struggling until his, you know, mid-40s and when he hit with Frankenstein. So he was incredibly appreciative where – Lugosi, I'm sure he was appreciative of, of success, but it must have been more frustrating to to reach a height so many times and then have to start over again. A- am I remembering correctly that when Lugosi originally played Dracula on stage, uh, he couldn't speak English and it, it was transliterated for him? Yeah, th- that is, you know, he'd only been in the country, I believe, at that point. He, st- he started it in 1927 on Broadway. Um, he'd only been in the country, I believe, for three or four years at that point, and his English was not good. So he basically mm. learned the learned it phonetically. You know, just knowing from people that you've ever met that have first come here, like he probably had a rudimentary understanding of English, but he, you know, I'm sure he didn't. He he had to learn it, even though he may have understood the words to really pronounce them correctly. He had to learn it uh, phonetically. Yeah. <laughs> that 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 just makes his performances <laughs> that much more amazing. Oh, um, absolutely. Who else was that? Um, in Interview with the Vampire, um, the gentleman who played Armand, whose name is escaping me, he had to do the same thing. I think he didn't speak English, and well, then Antonio. Um, Antonio? I'm sorry. Say again. Antonio Banderas. Yeah, if oh. I'm remembering correctly. He didn't speak English when he took that part. And um, uh, who was it? Um, um, oh, our friend Doug Jones didn't speak Spanish when he did Pan's Labyrinth, which, again, oh. just kind of astonishing. I'm going to go yeah. to another country and make a movie in a language I don't speak. That's yeah. that's insane on a certain level. Well, I mean, yeah, that Lancaster no. did it for The Leopard, too, which is an amazing movie. But, uh, right. you know. And they had to redub him. <laughs> so, <it's amazing. laughs> uh, so, Mr. Stone, sir, uh, let's talk about. We talk about your movie and and your and your book related to your, you know, your your uh, to the Universal Monsters. On a personal level, what are your favorite Universal Monster movies besides like, oh. uh, Frankenstein? Frankenstein. Yeah, well, I but my favorite. I, I love Bride of, Bride of Frankenstein. Um, I'm a big fan of The Invisible Man. That's the one that I often show people first. I think of the sort of original, the five original sound films. Anyway, that sort of are the 
cornerstone of it. I, I feel like the most accessible of them is the Invisible Man because it just sort of it it it, it has a, a structure that lends itself to sort of getting sucked into it more than than some of the others. So those are my favorites and I love Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, you know, when you want to get much later in the cycle of films and growing up, my favorite was the creature from the black lagoon, because that particularly the first one, the, in the, the creature from the black lagoon is just in the movie constantly where the other ones, uh, you know, particularly like Frankenstein, I, I wanted Frankenstein from the very beginning and, you know, he doesn't get created until about a half hour into it. So that, that was another favorite of mine that you're just from the beginning, you see the creature and he's all the way through it. So th- those are, those are my personal favorites. Excellent. Um, <coughs> excuse me. I've been under the weather. Trying not to cough on, on radio. Um, <laughs> okay. we, we actually went to a special screening of uh, Creature of the Black Lagoon recently for the Silver Screen Spook Show. And uh, actually it was the end of the Creature sequel. Um, and, you know, you you talk about Lamel Jr. You know and and kind of how unsung you guys. I there's a lot of power behind the thrones of the Universal monsters, and one of them is like my favorite, and she works on that film. It's Millicent Patrick, who designed the mm-hmm. suit. And, right. and I would love someone to like. There's a few things about her out there. It was supposed to be pre-COVID. They were doing a documentary about her, and it's all gone poof, gone away, and. It's, She's always been like one of those characters that I always wanted people to know more about. Uh, is there anybody in the Universal Monsters, obviously, that you haven't highlighted in your book as much in the Universal that you'd like to that you'd like to highlight at some point in the future? Well, I, or you, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, you know, no, that's a great question. We, you know, I, I think Jack Pierce, even though he's revered isn't quite, you know, he's kind of like Junior. He isn't as well known as, as he should be because so much of the success of those films is that those makeups that, you know, that, that he created. So certainly uh, Jack Pierce comes to mind, though, again, within the community, he, he does get his due. Um, God, that's, that's a great question. I'm trying to think of anybody else. You know, I, I haven't, I, I have to confess that because my story took place around Frankenstein in 1931. I didn't, with the exception of when I made this, you know, built this presentation, I didn't get too much deep into the production of the later films because it would be really fascinating. Uh, you know, when, when the Lemleys lost the studio and Junior was gone, the new people came in and they saw money and they continued the cycle. And it would be very interesting to read some of their internal memos about how they realized Oh wait, there's you know there's more money to be made here. We should continue on with these with these films, and I'm sure there must be some interesting characters in there who kind of spurned it on. And whoever came up with the idea of like you know because the cycle goes through so many phases. It starts with the original films, then it goes into the sequels, then the mashups where they start putting multiple monsters together, and then finally the comedies. And whoever came up with the idea like you know in the mid '40s when it's starting to run out with the mashups, like hey, I know what we'll do. Let's start making a series of comedies out of these, you know, straight up comedies. And, you know, that was a brilliant decision to, to connect them with Abbott and Costello. When I was at the, uh, the Famous Monsters Film Fest, they actually said that's what saved the monsters, that they were kind of running on fumes box office wise and, and story wise. And I was shocked to learn that Abbott and Costello were literally the biggest box office draw in the world at that point. Oh, they they and were huge. I mean, yeah, they I had were no idea. they were huge stars. Yeah, I mean, they, you know, 
some of their I enjoy some of their non horror films too, like Buck Privates and things like that. They were they were major stars, absolutely. Wow. Oh, we have a caller. Crazy. I mean, uh, she's they're kind of like listening already, but uh, we have a caller, so I'm gonna bring them on. I think they have a question for you. So, uh, welcome seven one four area code. You're on with the sexy witches. Hi there, it's Natalie. I was listening from the living room and I came to the back room to ask my yeah. question because of feedback. So um, my, my husband is Aaron and I also uh, got to see your presentation at the con, which was phenomenal. And um, thank you. I, I think one of the, oh, you're so welcome and thank you for, for doing it. And I, I really think that one of the high points for me was all the slides. I thought the slides were amazing. Um, they were such a wonderful addition um, and great visuals to what you were talking about that really, you know, brought me into that world. Um, so thank you for that. Oh, my pleasure. Um, thank you. Yeah, it was fun building yeah. that whole thing out. It was. Yeah. It was, I had a lot. I had a lot of the stuff from my research, so it was great to be able to like, oh, here's here's how I can, you know, all that time that I spent scanning and and all of that, you know, just it was nice to get to repurpose it for that. Mhm. Well, it was it was fantastic, and we were so happy with the presentation. We ended up buying the book for like three people, and oh, and uh, thank you. yeah, <laughs> and for our Halloween party this year. So as one of our yeah. giveaways. Um, oh, I really appreciate that. Thank you. Oh sure. Uh, I am also a fellow uh, geek and horror movie buff, and I was just wondering, um, do you consider um, this particular area with these five films to be kind of um, the beginning of the modern horror era? That's that's a great question. Well, it certainly is. And again, I talk about this in the presentation. It's where it sort of gets codified as a genre. You know, I, I meant, you know, before Frankenstein, these films, you know, you have Dracula, nobody else really, okay, Dracula's a hit. None of the other studios, take note of it. They're like, okay, you got lucky. After Frankenstein was a hit, suddenly they're all in the business of making these films. And the term horror for this type of film comes into existence where previously they were shockers or thrillers or mysteries. Mm, Cause there, right. there's a, there's a fan, there's a fantastic um, thing you can see on YouTube of it's an interview with Bella Lugosi in 1931 af, um, after Frankenstein. And it's part of a series you know, that they used to have then, I, I, I'm sure this isn't the actual title, but it's basically like at home with the stars. And this woman interviews Lugosi in what's supposed to be his backyard. I don't know if it actually is, but it's about, I think it's about six or seven minutes long. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's, it's easy to see on YouTube, but she refers to him because again, this is before Frankenstein has even come out. She refers to him as one of Hollywood's great mystery men. Because that's um, what they were being called, you know, after Frankenstein, or Frankenstein becomes a hit, now these are called horror actors. So it's interesting, mm. to, you know, again, I love, I love history in the moment, not looking back. So she doesn't call him, you know, today, when you see Bela Lugosi, people say, oh, he's one of the great horror actors. Mm-hmm. But, you know, here in that time, that phrase hadn't come into existence. So there's no question that, yes, this is really what launches the you know horror because after this they just keep making the films not just the universal cycle but all the other studios get in on the action and and start producing them and to this day you know everybody all the studios make this type of film 
Yes. And actually that goes into the, the next thing I wanted to ask. And um, how do you think that these uh, particular beginning films, these five films, uh, influenced horror today with the exception of the obvious, you know, iconic, you know, we haven't seen the films, but we know about them and, and we're familiar with their, their, uh, their tropes and things. But, but what, what maybe that we don't think about um, do you think maybe influence horror today from those films? Uh, that, yeah, that's, that's a good question. Well, I mean, it, it showed that audiences, you know, the influence was enough that, that they wanted these films and that uh, I guess it convinced them that people want to be scared because I, uh, <laughs> the, where horror has gone is kind of different. You know, the, these films uh, and kind of why I'm more of a fan of the earlier ones than, than say today, they were more examining larger questions, you know, which a lot of it was really about technology and science was for the first time being questioned because really a lot of it comes out of World War One because you saw mm-hmm. the horrors came from mm-hmm. technology. And so these films sort of reflect that where today that's not, I mean, there's some of that, but that's not as much the issue. You know, the, the other series are a little bit more, they're gorier and they're kind of more about mm-hmm. just sort of frightening. So I, I, I think it's yeah. more just the notion of, a, of taking these characters and being able to use them over and over again in film certainly comes out of what Universal did. I mean, I'm sure that once mm-hmm. they had the success with, you know, uh, with uh, Friday the 13th and Halloween, they definitely saw, oh, we, we, we can do this. And it's interesting seeing how Universal keeps trying to relaunch the monsters. You know, they had all these... Uh, uh, you know, dreams that they were going to have the dark universe and it just it, it ended after one movie you know that you mm. you can still go to universal um my, my wife is a customer and uh she was working on a show for a number of years that was right across from that the famous dark universe building that was basically empty because after the the mummy with tom cruise bombed the whole thing you know got shelved um mm-hmm. they have started calling recap- that mummy impossible Oh. Oh. Yeah, it's uh, sorry, Tom. Uh, yeah, no, it, 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 you know, and and I don't think they ever will be able to replicate it because it, it had such a mm. such a singular feel. You know, that's the other great thing about the cycle that even though it's twenty five years later, when you get into the fifties with the Abbott and Costellos, there was because of the humor that Whale brought to it, you still feel like you're watching, you know, a film that has a similar sensibility to the original yeah. where the, the, the Tom Cruise mummy, I, I don't know what that was. Like, that's a great line. Yeah. I felt more mission in mission impossible than, than one of the monster films. Well, and, yeah. and what the one film that survived that whole fiasco was the invisible man, which you said was right. Yeah. Approachable. And well, that it ended was Blumhouse. Up, yeah. Well, that was Blumhouse. Well, was it Blumhouse? I thought it was like, it was, was it a Blumhouse? Yeah. Wasn't but, it? No. Am I high? But, but yeah. that is Universal. Universal that they have their deal with Universal. Right. But it wasn't. It, it wasn't. It didn't grow out of the Dark Universe thing because it was. Uh, you know, it was really the Invisible Woman. Uh, I mean, she yeah. was tormented by the Invisible Man. But um, uh, uh, yeah, no, I know that's the only other one that's come out and done well. But it, it, they haven't really been able to build this sort of universe with a continuity because obviously there was no connection between that film and and the Tom Cruise Mummy movie. No. No, not at all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was just saying, but you were talking about how it's one of the most approachable stories, but that's because they were able to take the modern 
modern and they used it as and and gave it a modern lens but this but the basic yeah. story is still there and ultimately mad yeah. scientist figures out how to turn himself invisible but they just flipped it and made it more about the people he's tormenting which is right, actually right. pretty cool uh so yeah. uh if you could, if you could write a screenplay for one and reboot one Universal monster movie outside of Frankenstein, or putting that because that's its own thing, uh, what would you do? Boy, that's I haven't gotten that question before. <laughs> you put me on the spot here. I, I've never because I'm so like I've been so caught up in like what went on behind the scenes. I've never thought about the actual. The actual films themselves, if if I would do them, I'll I'll tell you what would be interesting would be to do something with Bride of Frankenstein. It's it's amazing mm. how famous. Think of how famous that character is, and what it's on screen for three minutes, and it never came up again. You know, it never shows up in a sequel. It, it, it's it's really interesting. So that would be a fascinating area to do something with the the Bride of Frankenstein, even though she dies at the end of the movie. But as we all know, that doesn't mean anything in these films. Uh, sure. <laughs> you know, they, but that, yeah, that would probably be the area. I don't have anything off the top of my head, but that that feels so interesting to me that in all the mashups and reboots and everything, the the bride was never brought back. No, yeah, and God. she's so iconic too for having yeah so little time. You're absolutely well, right. Again, yeah, I mean, again, Lancaster every... is a bomb. I mean, she she mm-hmm. she needs yeah. yeah. more more attention than she got. You know. Yeah, so, no, it's incredible. And, and again, show that image to anybody and they'll go, oh, that's the Bride of Frankenstein. Have you seen the movie? Mm-hmm. No. You know, it, it's just, it's such a famous image. It, it's such a, it, it, and it's such a beautiful image of, you know, again, this is Jack Pierce because it's a gorgeous art deco look that she has. And it's, it, and it's just, and, it, and it's a, it looks so good in black and white. In color, it wouldn't have the same impact. It's just such a 30s glamour, mixed in with mm-hmm. the monsters. I mean, you know, they, they make this beautiful woman with the gorgeous Art Deco lightning bolts. And I mean, it, it's just fantastic. David well, Das Mulchen, uh, the actor who uh, I guess most recently is famous for uh, Polka Dot Man in the Suicide Squad, he introduced Invisible Man at the uh, famous Monsters Film Fest. And he had a great take on it. And uh, in his mind, it's about addiction. And yeah. I would yeah. pay folding money to see him or someone else run with that. Yeah. No, that that's, yeah. I mean, yeah, it's about addiction and also being addicted to power. You know, madness. Yeah, exactly. Being driven. Yeah. No, no question. May I ask you a very unfair question? <laughs> sure. <laughs> May I ask you to compare and contrast Universal Horror and Hammer Horror? Oh, God. You see, now that's where I'm at a big disadvantage. I don't know a lot of Hammer Horror. I've seen a few, but I'm – and every one that I've seen, I'm always amazed that, like, they're they're very good. I just didn't the, their go version deeper, of, so, uh, Their Chris Lee version of Frankenstein, Christmas Frankenstein, is pretty good. You actually yeah, have like – I've enjoyed all of them that I've seen. I just haven't gotten that deep, so – I'm afraid I, I, you know, I can only tell you the, the, the looks certainly aren't, you know, it's not Jack Pierce. They're great makeup, but they don't have, oh, you know, no, not the, even close. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they're, you know, Frankenstein is both 
frightening and beautiful in the creation. You know, it's an amazing image. It's a frightening image, but it's, it's kind of amazing that the power and the simplicity of it, where the, the hammer stuff is kind of a little bit more gory and gross, where the, the universal stuff didn't really get into the sort the more sort of gross aspect of it. Right. Gory. Well, but, so, you yeah, know, that's, it's not just gore. I mean, they're trying to, you know, they also have much more heaving bosoms, too. Here, here. Different times. You know, they, they, they definitely went in that direction, too, yeah. <laughs> well, um, we're going to let you go, but you have a big, big show coming up, so plug your stuff. Sure, yeah. I'll be at Son of Monster Palooza in a, in a few weeks, and, and uh, I'm doing an encore presentation, and I'm also going to be joined uh, afterwards for the panel uh, by Antonia Carlotta. And I don't know if you know her, she has a wonderful <coughs> web series called Universally Me. She is the grandniece, uh, the, either the grandniece or the great-grandniece of Carl Lemley. And, oh, uh, oh, cool. Yeah, she's, she's really, I, I highly recommend her, uh, her web series of stuff. She does videos about her family's legacy. And she was very close to uh, Carla Lemley. Did do you, are you guys familiar with her? She used to do. I, mm-hmm. I saw her at some conventions. She speaks the very first line in Dracula, and she was alive until only oh, I want to say seven or eight years ago. I think she passed away. And I it, and and there is some clips of her talking about Junior. I always regretted not getting a chance to talk to her because she grew up with Junior, basically. And, and wow. there is some good stuff in interviews of her talking about him and what his interests were. Uh, but I always wished I'd had more of a chance to, to chat with her. Uh, I was just beginning to do my research, so I didn't quite realize, you know, the direction it was going. So anyway, uh, so there, yeah, there's so a great, up. sorry, there's a great documentary no, no. called Universal Horror that um, Kenneth Branagh narrates it. I forget who yeah. made it, but oh, yeah. Car- Carla's in that and talks a lot about mm-hmm. Carl Jr. Yeah. No, she is. Uh, yeah, and it's a terrific documentary. So, yeah, I'm going to be at Son of Monster Palooza doing the presentation. I'll also be at a table through the whole show selling the book. Uh, so, yeah, come on by. Let's, let's, let's talk about monsters, and I'll have some of my other books there. I have uh, a couple other novels, and then I also have uh, sort of, it's sort of an odd thing, but it's another aspect of the creative stuff. I have a book of old rock and roll photos that I took in the 1980s, uh, which uh, um, was published about five or six years ago and uh, is actually does quite well. Um, I used to smuggle my equipment into rock and roll concerts in the eighties as a teenager. And uh, I had this huge archive of about 10,000 images that I did nothing with until various machinations happened. But somebody said, you need to do a book. And I did. And that's also filled with the stories that I had of being chased by roadies and security and <laughs> had my camera, you know, it's a, it's a fun book. So I'll have that there too. So, you want to talk about that's rock and roll? You want to talk that, about monsters? What else are you talking about. about? That's a big, beautiful uh, coffee table book that you had at the other convention, yeah. right? Yeah, Excellent. that's it. The coffee t- Yeah, no cameras allowed. That's what, uh, It's Excellent. no cameras allowed in my career as an outlaw rock and roll photographer, so I'll have that one there, too. <laughs> Excellent. And that is October 13th to the 15th, right? Right. I'm doing the presentation at 2 o'clock on Saturday the 14th. Um, so, yeah, please come. I'm really excited to be doing it again, and I'm excited to be joined by uh, Antonia afterwards for uh, for the panel and the Q&A and all that. 
just remember, Very cool. it, it's bad on the 13th, but on the 14th, it gets worse. <laughs> so, We're and all you know, it's, uh, that. Uh, you know, I know you guys are all, you, you know, deep <laughs> in the world of conventions. If you run into any of the people that you know that run these or anything, please, uh, if you could mention me to them, because I, I would love to do it anywhere. I, I, I love doing the presentation. It's really well, fun. You should, you should do StokerCon for sure. And uh, uh, Scares and Cares no longer does a regular convention show, but they have one that's specifically for horror authors. So I'd recommend looking at those two conventions. Uh, what, what was the first one? You, oh, so, yeah, you know, I know. I, I missed that. I didn't. I I read about it afterwards. I know that that one sounds amazing. I yeah. have a lot of people right. I know that do StokerCon, so including my friend Lynn Hansen. Shout out, she's in New Orleans right now on sabbatical. Uh, so and her husband Jeff. And it, it, it's a really uh, yeah. You should definitely look into StokerCon for sure. I don't Great. know anyone uh, at. Creep it real, but um, I know that's going on this weekend in Orange. Creep it real. I, I, I never even heard of that one. Oh my god! At the that Heritage so Museum many. of Orange County, I'll, I'll uh, send you the deets on it. <laughs> so it's a, it's a wow! Oh my god! Wow! And they what they do? Oh a yeah, I show every year. I'm I'm a freak about conventions. I'll I'll send you everything I got. Oh yeah, oh, he is. I would so appreciate that. Thank you. <laughs> I, my pleasure. They, my pleasure. They keep they keep popping up, and I I, I would love to to present it all of them. So, well, you have uh, a my wonderful... wife dropped off the line, but she wanted to say thank you uh, for answering thank our you. question. Thank you, Nat, sure. for coming on the line, and uh, thank you, sir, for spending the beginning of spooky season with us. And good luck at Monster Palooza. Uh, we all will keep an eye on your progress and call great. anytime. Great. So, Thank you for having me. This has been a lot of fun. Great talking yeah. with all of you. I appreciate Thank it. You Thank so you so much. Yeah. Have a good night. Be, you so. too. Take care, everybody. All right. Good night now. Bye. So that was awesome. That was Julian David Stone. So buy his book, It's Alive, uh, a historical fiction about the making of the 1930s Frankenstein. So and next week is the madness, and uh, we will be reading the rules for the Halloween horror movie marathon madness mm-hmm. on the next podcast, 9 p.m. Eastern, and we will talk specifically about vampires, vampire tropes, but the madness itself and how you play the game. And remember, you don't have to watch vampire movies to play the madness. You just have to have a love of movies to play, and a little bit of uh, discipline, and you can win the madness. So we'll talk about that next week. Uh, meantime, Mr. Aaron, sir, thank you. That was a wonderful interview. You're oh, always so you're much fun. Thank you so much. Guest. Oh, no, I'm so glad you brought our guest on, and he was perfect warm-up for our, our next week's show. Uh, but we have to change topics because some big shit went down in the world of professional wrestling, Mr. Kogan. You oh, have yes. no idea. Oh my God! It's been. I'm frightened. Uh, it, I am too. Okay, so I had my 50th birthday at the Go Home Show, which is the show before All In in Wembley Stadium. Uh, I sat two what two seats from the front row. Is that it? I was like literally row B. Uh, so we were right there, and we watched them shoot Collision and Dynamite, and I got on Collision, so you can see me. 
Uh, you can see Nathan flipping off Don Moxley on Dynamite, which is terrible. <laughs> That's um, awesome. Yeah, but a lot of stuff went down. Like that morning, Terry Funk, who was also a stuntman in Hollywood, uh, one of the uh, like like death match or tours. I, it's the only way I can describe him. Uh, he passed. One of the away. greatest wrestlers of all time, like Bonnie. <laughs> Doesn't yeah. matter what style you're talking. Legend in Japan, America, Mexico, all the way around the world. He had his first retirement match in 1983. He wrestled his last match in 2018. So, Damn. And he lived to be 76, which for a wrestler is a great run. Because <laughs> yeah. wrestlers have very short lives, shelf lives. It so sure seems like it, yeah. Especially uh, from the era when he was coming up. Yeah, and so if you want to see some great stuff, um, I would assume that Nathan and I would both recommend Googling uh, Eddie McFoley uh, matches with him, which were always epic. Uh, so, nice. uh, but, uh, for me, but there's a lot of stuff out there on him. But also, and unexpectedly around the same time, uh, a WWE star, Bray Wyatt, uh, passed suddenly yeah. at how old? He was young, young. How old was he? He was, thir- he was 34 years old. 34. Yeah. Uh, and he young. died of COVID. He got a heart problem that was directly <laughs> indirectly related to uh, long COVID. Yeah, he had, he had oh. an underlying heart condition, <laughs> and it t- turns out COVID exacerbated it, and yeah, so it's... He was about to make his in-ring debut. Um, he was back in the gym. He was. They even were talking about medically clearing him, and he just suddenly died. Um, very tragic. Yeah, he was. He was one of the more over-the-top creative characters that's come out in many, many years in uh, the WWE. A lot of people considered him kind of the heir to the Undertaker's throne as the the spooky character. You know, mm-hmm. and he, some of the, he he wrestled in a mask designed and created at Tom Savini's school. Like he, you know, he was wow. he was one of he was one of us as well. He was. Everyone talks about how they like you know a couple of people you know Brody King and a few other people talked about how they sat out you know in the back with him and just talked horror movies forever. So he was he was not only an incredible performer, but he he was a geek like us. So. He didn't look like Undertaker though. He looked like one. Of, he literally looked like a, your friend you would hang out in the back and roll a joint and watch a horror film with. I mean, he, he was. He, I think. Yeah, <laughs> he was that person. <laughs> but anyway, so uh, you know, so re- so that all happened, and so everyone was pretty devastated. And then All In hits, which was a huge show. Once again, eighty six thousand people, the highest paid attendance to any yeah. single wrestling event in the world. They uh, packed. Wembley. They packed Wembley Stadium. That is a huge <laughs> building. They, and, they, and, they, and they they came within a couple thousand of selling the place out, which no company other than WWE has ever sold anywhere really close to that in the last, we'll say, thirty five, forty years. But they now hold the record. So, like, I, I love that I live in a time in wrestling where, you know, it's that wide open. Like, a company can show up and four years later break every attendance record, and, you know, there is, in a business that has 150 years of history. And that should have been the story, but it wasn't the story. 
is, is, you know, as, as, as quickly as that kiss in Spain ruined the World Cup for the millions of people, um, something happened backstage, and they alluded to it at the scrum, but didn't talk about it initially, between CM Punk and uh, Jack Perry, who's uh, the son of, uh, of uh, Luke Perry. Luke you know, uh, so Jungle Boy Jack Perry, mm. and then they got into an actual scuffle. And then slowly but surely, the story started coming out uh, that CM Punk and him got in a scuffle. Uh, it was near the gorilla position. The monitor fell and hit Tony Khan in the head, um, oh. and, which is the owner of AEW. Uh, Samoa Joe, who is the biggest dude you'll see in your life, pretty much, uh-huh. uh, was, was like the hero of the story and tried to de-escalate everything because everyone said he was being a really good guy. And uh, two days later, uh, it, it, well, I mean, it, this was before, by the way, this was after J- Jack Perry's match, but before CM Punk's match because he was opening the show with Samoa Joe. And uh, they went out and did their match. Uh, so, like, Nathan and I saw the, literally the second-to-last match that CM Punk would will probably ever have at the Go Home Why Show not? on Collision because he was fired for cause two days weird, after. Weird, oh. weird connection. I saw Chris Benoit's next to the last match, which, is, which was the final match was supposed to be against CM Punk. Then I saw CM Punk's next to the last match before his career were pretty much sure is over. So I'm, I just see everyone's second to last match, I guess. Uh, so so that became the story. I don't know if you remember, Nate, uh, Aaron, a year ago, CM Punk did something very similar on All Out, their, their pay-per-view at Chicago, oh. uh, where, where they got he got into a scuffle with uh, uh, the, the Elite and Kenny Omega, and they all got suspended. Uh, and uh, uh, the only one that didn't get suspended was Hangman because he wasn't there. Um, and during the scuffle, uh, AJ Steele, like he got fired too recently off AEW. Uh, <laughs> a dog, a dog got punched during what? that scuffle. <laughs> yeah. Yes, and Kenny Omega had to grab the dog and rush him out of the room, and AJ oh Steele bit somebody, and chairs were flying. Apparently, it was quite the. Uh, the Pier Six Brawl, to quote the late so great uh, was, Gordon Stoley. So what happened was he got they all got suspended. CM Punk was put on leave because he also got injured because he just gets injured all the time. Uh, so yeah. he was injured, and they knew that because he's such a big draw, they brought CM Punk back, gave him his own show, Collision. Yeah. It was his own show to help book himself and style, and actually was getting good ratings. Like, the ratings were really strong for a Saturday. Uh, and, a really always, and, and a really good show. I, I actually started enjoying it more than Dynamite. And uh, then all of a sudden, yeah. we're back after Wembley. We're back to see a punk being suspended again and now fired. That was one of the – that two years was some of the craziest shit I've ever experienced in my life. And I got to be part of it in a weird way. And I'm kind of honored yet completely <laughs> flabbergasted. And it's a huge, crazy story. Like, them having to fire him right now, that's like in the mid-'90s if WWE had, been, had no other choice but to fire The Rock or something like that. Like, he is he's yeah. their number. he's their number one needle mover as far as tickets sold, as far as viewership, as far as everything. In fact, the the next episode – 
of Collision. Uh, Tony Khan started the show by coming by announcing that he had fired CM Punk. Nineteen percent of their audience immediately changed the channel. Wow, nineteen percent. Well, Adrian is a huge CM Punk fan. For him, it's CM Punk, Bullet Club, and Japanese League. And Mm -hmm. I mean, that's can't argue with that. He eats, drinks, breathes. Those are his favorite wrestlers, and uh, I haven't had a chance to talk to him about this, about CM. But, you know, I'm only tangentially uh, aware of wrestling between him and you all and a couple other friends. Uh, I got the impression that CM Punk was a good guy uh, outside the ring. I mean, you know, not not persona-wise. There's been... All throughout his career, he's he's always kind of been the anti-authoritarian voice of the voiceless type of dude on and off screen. And I've, I personally have always been team CM Punk on all the things he's done, but ever since like, he's really, (laughs) ever since he, I guess he, ever since he got out of the UFC or he got his ass beat, he's kind of had a chip (laughs) on his shoulder and he just, he just kind of came in. And according to who you listen to, he's either backstage trying to help people and give helpful advice, or he's backstage trying to run the show and tell everyone how to do their business and getting pissed off and swinging at people if they don't. So it kind of makes you look back on a lot of the issues he had with WWE and with, you know, Impact and IWAD uh, Mid-South and a lot of those and kind of makes you wonder, okay, I guess I kind of got to re-examine was, you know, (laughs) was it totally the other side or was CM Punk kind of being a dick too, you know? Mm. He was a diva. I, I was calling him Diva Punk. So. Yeah, but whether whether or not the point is he he's a fantastic performer, and the show is really going to suffer without him. And now it's just it's going to be interesting to see where they go from here and what they pick up and continue on with without him. So you know, well, that's my that's my next question. Who do they get to replace him? There's, there's, there's some there's, speculative there really... journalism. Yeah, there's a little, but there's there's real. I would say there's really no free agent on his level right now to be picked up that isn't really under contract that I conceivably would see going over there. But we also never thought CM Punk would come back to wrestling in the first place. Uh, so, the wrestling is a business yeah. where you never ever say never. So how old is he? He's oh god, I'm not even sure. Hang on, twenties. Okay. Talk amongst yourselves. <laughs> so uh, the the other thing, bless you. The other thing I know about CM Punk is he's a big Chicago guy. Yeah, uh, that, well, that's, that's how I think of him. He's forty four years old. Forty four. Okay. Forced to fire him right before their big show in Chicago. Yeah, but wow. after after Wembley, their next show was in Chicago, so that ended oh up having God. to be the show where he had to walk, where Tony Khan had to go face the audience and tell them, "Hey, I just fired your hero. Please don't hate us." <laughs> so, are people returning their tickets for the Chicago show? No, they, matter of fact, they were actually uh, we were all worried that they were going to boo Omega. Uh, and they didn't. They actually were very – the audience was very, very good. The only person that got any heat at all was Tony Khan himself. 
Uh, so, huh. uh, you know, so maybe we'll, they'll be able to survive, and we kind of hope so, because I love AEW, and I, and they have a bunch of new, po- uh, they have full years coming up, they announced another joint pay-per-view with uh, New Japan called uh, Wrestle Dream, and that's coming up in October 1st, so that's actually almost here, um, and only, they have only announced two matches so far. <laughs> which is pretty typical. Uh, and I want to uh, go. Back, I want to go back one more time to the to the go home show, uh-huh. the show we saw at um, the you know right before they taped uh, two shows on that Wednesday when we were there, so everyone could just jump on a plane to England <laughs> the next day. But <laughs> what's fascinating about like the big arena shows because I work in indie wrestling shows where you're, you know, the fans are right up on top of the ring and it's a very small, intimate atmosphere, but going to a gigantic production like that, you almost get distracted from what's going on in the ring, watching the production crew run around like an anthill, just like trying to produce this live television show. And for, you know, for all of us who have an interest in filmmaking and production and all that kind of stuff, it is fascinating to watch that close. And it's the sexy cranes, the sexy, the two sexiest camera cranes we have ever seen in the history of ever. I mean, oh, they're so uh, smooth, so yeah. fluid in their movements. Those are yeah. the sexiest <laughs> camera cranes ever. The sexy cranes. Well, we will talk about. We will have our in November. Are these are a few of our favorite things episodes? Will we will do a couple of hours about everything but movies, Hold on. and then we will one. also. We got one more oh, wrestling well, thing we need to go over before we. All right, out. we better do it quickly. We're already at eleven, so. Uh, okay. This last, this last weekend, I presided over the Suicide yeah. King Cup in Knoxville, Tennessee. I want to give a uh, shout out to Blood Money Brian Richard, Richards, who won and is now uh, Brad Cash, who is known as the Suicide King, Southern Deathmatch Wrestling Legend, for, uh, gave that title to him for winning that. And I finally got my – I have made deathmatch weapons for a long time. I've made syringe beds of nails. I've made all kinds of stuff that people oh. – but I finally got to make a board of taxidermy blowfish and see yeah. someone actually take a <laughs> bump into it, and it was amazing. Um, that was such a fun show. Um, everybody go out. And we've been talking about AEW and how cool these huge shows are. Go out and support independent wrestling too, guys. But like, yeah. look around; it's everywhere. We it, this was in somebody's front yard, literally in the middle of nowhere, Kentucky. Yeah. Kind of I mean, so I mean, yeah, yeah, look around. Wrestling's going on all over the place. Too. It yeah. They paid their tickets, and it was a lot of fun. Yeah, and wrestling is a lot like horror movies. The big budget stuff, the big productions are awesome. But those little ones with not as nearly as much money, but double the heart, can be just as awesome. So support independent horror and support independent wrestling. And we also want to give a quick shout out and congratulations to Deep South Wrestling, which is one of the promotions Nathan sometimes works for. Um, They did a show at DOS Barbecue, and they had 456 show up, which would have been a sold out for their level of play per view. So congratulations. On that as well, and uh, their next show is October 1st as well. So uh, there's a lot happening for spooky season coming up, and uh, we will talk about all of that next week um, when we talk about the Halloween horror movie Marathon Madness. Um, sucks, and we'll talk about all sorts of vampires and Dracula and Anne Rice and Lestat. 
and bonus points, which actually are pretty difficult points to write. Um, and mm. all the things, all the wonderful spooky season stuff coming up. And on top of that, there's a new Saw movie coming out. Uh, oh, yeah. you know, there's, a, there's a Friday the 13th in October. Uh, you know, there's all sorts of, of big things happening for spooky season. Haunted House always. season is coming. Haunted House season starts on oh, the 20, on the twenty second. Halloween Horror Nights is already open in Orlando and is about to open next week in in Hollywood. Uh, you know, it's just it's the it's the most wonderful time of year. So everyone, thank you. I have three quick things. Yes. Quick things. Uh, quick. Creep it real in Orange County Fest. We already talked about that. John Waters Walk of Fame. Getting yes. a star on Hollywood Walk of Fame oh, yeah. on Monday the 18th. Hell yeah. Right. And, Thank you for um, this, oh, <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping I can go. And this Friday, Satanic Hispanics, which has been getting all kinds of great reviews at the Frida Cinema, 8 o'clock, <sighs> with the directors. Raven, if you're listening, call me Satanic Hispanics. Oh, uh, 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 one of our, our uh, one of us is going to be there. Uh, 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 the girl that did. Uh, oh my God, I'm so tired. Uh, not Jill. The <laughs> other one. What's her, what's her name? What's her name? Gigi. Uh, 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 Gigi. Yeah, Gigi Salerno is going to be there. Um, oh, she right did on. one of the. She did one of the one of the uh, segments, and uh, one of the segments by Alejandro Brujeres is is a vampire. So, nice. uh, so it's madness related. So excellent. Very good point. Um, oh, you might, you might. I mean, you're you're also a judge, it doesn't count. But anyway, we will come back next week, the twentieth, Wednesday. Be there. If you're thinking about being part of the madness and you listen to that show, you will get two points for listening if you check in with us. And I'll tell you how to do that. Fine if you call in. Thank you to our guests, Julian, David Stone. Thank you, Raven. Good luck on your show. Go see your, their show once again, the 28th yeah. through, the, through the 15th. Aaron, thank you for a wonderful interview and bringing our guests. And Nathan, you rock and I can't wait to see what more wrestling you do in the near future. Uh, you won't have to wait long. October 1st, Dallas Barbecue, next Deep South yeah. show. Yep, yep. Nice. Feel better, you two. Yeah, I got to get off the, the air. I'm sure this has been one of those things where everyone's like, oh, my God, she needs to stop hacking. I do, I do. I need to go to bed. I'll see you all in the morning, um, and uh, I'll see you next week. Blessed be good film hunting now, and uh, don't forget to go to the Vampire Club. Blood. The night the pirates came to the vampire club The leader was tall and snide and slim He looked like a gay Captain Morgan Well, he recognized the vampire from his school He did something that was most uncool He said, hey, everybody, see the fool in the cave His name is Bernie Weinstein and he's in the eighth grade Things were fine, cakes were torn Hell hath no fury like a vampire storm Number one rule in this game And Boris at the bar orders the bud And says it's just another night at the Vampire Club Mickey lost 
contacts down the drain. There was so much angst after the fight. Blind and Akasha broke up that night. Blossom Rivet had danced in a puddle of goo. That used to be father, you know who. Fangs were flying, capes were torn. Hell hath no fury like a vampire scorn. Number one rule in this game. Never call him by his real name. Wigs were pulled, top hats were crushed. My pointy boots in a rush. And Boris at the bar orders a bud and says it's just another night at the vampire club. at the bar. 